0: Well good morning church family I wanted to uh, just share something before I jump in our passage and sermon for us this morning uh based off really just building off of what Pastor Tom already prayed for us earlier this morning at the beginning of our service in my uh, quiet time this morning I was actually reading in matthew chapter twenty four and this is where Jesus begins to foretell uh, he's already done this a couple of times but again he re- he repeats and s- foretells his death and things that are about to come about as well as things that will eventually come about in God's ultimate redemptive plan. Of course, this also gets the disciples somewhat curious. They're going like, oh, you said some things that actually caught our attention and we want to know further. And so in Matthew 24, starting in verse 3, I will read or you can just listen. It says, "'As he sat, as Jesus sat on the mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "'Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age?' And Jesus answered them, "'See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, "'I am the Christ,' and they will lead many astray.'" I thought that passage very appropriate for us this morning because although this has nothing to do with our, uh, our exegetical series through 1 Peter, um, you know, obviously for all of us, uh, unless you live under a rock or something, you're very aware of what's going on in Asia. You're very aware of the whole Russia-Ukraine crisis, and, uh, and I'm not sure what your thoughts or perceptions or conclusions are on that, but I know it weighs heavy on me and I know on many of you. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, the Olympics end, and all of a sudden it's just like some world leaders are taking full advantage of this window of opportunity, at least in their minds. And it's really sad. And the question in my mind always is how, a Christ, how, how should a Christian think about current events? How should a Christian view, talk about, and what perspective ought they adopt when these kind of things take place? Specifically, Wars. Well I think Jesus actually speaks to that uh, in a very general sense, but also gives us indication as how we ought to be the perspective we ought to adopt as Christians. You know one of the things that I I you know as I was processing this morning and I even talked with Pastor Tom about this quickly this morning, and I think what I just want to leave with you is this. When we read a passage such as this what it tells us is that these things must take place. That doesn't mean we condone it. That doesn't mean we want it. That doesn't mean we don't pray against it. So, in other words, when we read a passage like Matthew chapter 24, the intent is to ease our confusion, but not to ease our burden. It's to ease our confusion because oftentimes what we do is we kind of like, well, why is this happening and what's going on? Well, the Bible speaks to what's going on. And if you look continue and to look to apocalyptic literature like Revelation and parts of Ezekiel and parts of Daniel and, and many others, you go, wow, this is the progression of things. And at the same time, this is never intended to ease our burden. It is to perpetuate and to even more so, foster a unified sense of prayer. It is to rally the church that we might be a prayerful people, that we might actually come alongside one another, that we might link arms together, and that we might pray for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that are in Ukraine right now, that we might pray for our brothers and sisters in in Christ that are in Russia right now. This is how we ought to respond when things such as this are transpiring in our world. And so I'd like to pray for us again. I'd like to pray for our brothers and sisters. I'd like to pray for the church in all these various regions. Things have already become very volatile in our world and they can seem to become increasingly more volatile. It can can cause a sense of unsettledness in us, right? Oh no, what's going to happen? And don't look at your... 401k, whatever, let's look to Jesus. May we fix our eyes upon Jesus because we also see as a result of all these events that have and will one day transpire, we see that the gospel goes forward. The gospel goes forward. The kingdom of God advances When things are chaotic, does God endorse the chaos? Absolutely not, but he is in the business of redeeming and renewing and using him for his glory. And so we pray to that end, and we want our minds, our lives, and our conversations to also be aligned to that ultimate end as well. So church family, can we just bow our heads right now, and we may pray for the church that is no doubt suffering at this very moment. Oh, Lord, we know and we acknowledge the fact that you care very deeply of what's going on in your world. It's a world in which we inhabit, but it's your world. You created it, and one day you will fully redeem it, renew it, and restore it. And we know that you came for the ultimate purpose of conquering evil and, and, and de- demolishing sin and doing away with it once and for all. But yet, we live in this already, but not yet season in your redemptive plan. And so we still see sin reign abundant at times. And we still see sin wreaking havoc and destroying lives But Father, we do come back to necessary points of reference such as we know that you care. We know that you love your church. We know that you love people. And so although we don't know why things are the way they are at times and we don't know how things always transpire the way they do, but Father, we do know this, that you are sovereign and you are Lord, that you are God, and that nothing happens unless you Allow it. We don't always understand those things, but we trust you. And we know that you're good. And so I pray for our brothers and sisters, Father, in Ukraine. I pray for the church in Russia. I pray that, Father, that though there is much going on that is outside of their control, I pray that, Father, you would ultimately be glorified that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of this conflict. That you would superintend over all of it, and even as Nebuchadnezzar, the king of a foreign pagan nation, even acknowledged at the, at the, at the end of his life or the later, latter parts of his life, you, God, are the one who puts rulers and kings and presidents, even dictators, in their place to ultimately carry out your plan. So, Father, help us to align ourselves to that way of thinking. And, Father, may we not be confused unnecessarily, but may we uh, grow in this burden for these people. And may we ask that, Father, would you save many as a result? The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but you, Father, have come to give life. So may life be the result of evil actions. May many more brothers and sisters in Christ be, uh, be the result of evil actions. What, what evil or what Satan intended for evil, may God you use for good. Strengthen, encourage, and help your church endure faithfully until the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Since your Bibles are already open, I want to ask you to flip over to the right to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we continue in our series of this letter that Peter writes to the exiles, to, to people that have been scattered through persecution, religious persecution, hostile circumstances, people are scattering all over the place, somewhat indicative of what's going on even now. We don't understand it. No one wants it in the moment, and yet look what God does through it. He has his minions, in a sense, his brothers and sisters, his children all over the place representing the gospel of Jesus in Asia Minor. And so, Peter's encouraging these brothers and sisters in Christ, and he continues to encourage and our elder George Wood preached last week, and he, draw, he helped us draw focus to what Christ did on our behalf. It really drew us to just an amazing worship of King Jesus for what he did for us, and what great lengths God went to make salvation possible. Well, we continue where he left off in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 22, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2. So, read along with me or listen along with me, and then we'll draw some observations and application from this text. Verse 22, having purified your souls for obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the Word as they were destined to There's a, say, a saying that oftentimes gets mentioned or repeated, and I think it rings true uh, most of the time, but the saying is this, we're all products of our culture. We're all products of our culture. Not necessarily because we should be all the time, but because it, because it generally describes why people are the way they are. So, for example, you know, what we believe to be true or not true what, we believe, what our attitudes are about what we like or dislike, our values about what is right or what is wrong, our even our ethnic affiliation, all these factors are influenced by what the culture in which a person usually inhabits. One prominent way that culture influences people has much to do with their identity You see, the world in which you and I live, especially the culture in which you and I inhabit, is continually preaching a message to us that declares basically one prominent statement, this is who you are. This is who you are. And of course, this message of who you are is declared both in an explicit manner as well as kind of in a, as well as in a subtle manner. It kind of slips in, and sometimes you don't even know why you think who you are what you are, but the fact is you think it no matter what. It's a message that claims to know and seeks to convince you that this is who you really are or really who you should become, and therefore, without us even realizing it, because we are products of our culture, we grow up with an idea or at least a perspective, for example, of this is what it means to be a man, right? Right? If you were to look at what it means to be a man, for example, you could watch the Super Bowl that happened a few weeks back, and there are, you know, commercials that kind of tell us, ah, this is what manliness is. (laughs) And likewise, oh, this is what it means to be a woman, at least a woman who is, you know, seen. Or this is what it means to be an adult. Right? Or in our day and age, this is what it means to be an adult adolescent till you're 35. <laughs> but the fact is, when we think about one's identity And I think an observation that you and I can make that is both realized as well as affirmed is that our identity is oftentimes given to us objectively. In other words, our identity more often than not is affirmed by sources outside of ourselves. In other words, who you think you are isn't just because you kind of looked within yourself and made that discovery. No, who you think you are is because of what others have initiated and affirmed about you. Now, you may think, no, no, and this is very common, especially for for people to encourage young people, you know, we need to give people, young people enough time to look within and and discover themselves and to find themselves, you know, that statement, find yourself. No, no, your identity is ultimately bestowed upon you. It is given to you. You might think that, yeah, I think I'm good at this or I think I'm like this and I'm more like that, and you can take personality profiles all you want, but in the end, people tell you who you are. Culture influences who you are and what you are becoming. It's why, as a kind of a way of side note, parents, you play a vital role as parents for your children. Because the question that children are always asking is, who am I? Who am I? And if, parents, you don't continually reinforce and reinforce and reinforce over and over and over again, this is who you are, then guess what? The only alternative is the culture, and the perspective of the culture is going to influence your child. It's no different in Christendom. It's no different when we think of or consider spiritual things. Our identity as Christians is also given to us or influencing us from sources outside of us. And what I mean by that is that ultimately the reason why we know we are Christian and what a Christian is like is because this is who God says we are. We're not Christian because I say I am. I'm a Christian because this is who God says I am. And our questions of identity are answered for us both in Scripture and are validated through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. I think in our passage this morning, we see that Peter encourages these suffering Christians really by drawing focus, by drawing their attention on who they are. This is who you are. Because after all, they're living in some very chaotic times, and the chaos is only going to continue to increase. It's only going to continue to get more pressing and more difficult. And so Peter, aided by the Spirit, feels compelled to encourage these fellow suffering Christians going, hey, just so you know, there's a lot of things people are going to say about you. But may you understand what God says about you. There's a lot of voices and a lot of messages kind of confusing and stirring up and mudding up the waters here, but may you not lose sight on what God says about you. Your creator has something even more profound and eternal to help you come back to this necessary point of reference called your identity in Christ. And he actually includes six different kind of markers of identity. Peter, there's so many other Uh, identity markers that we observe in Scripture, but Peter includes six in our passage this morning. We're going to just quickly highlight those, draw some application, but then there's an ultimate application that comes from that. So that'll kind of tell you where we're going here. Six truths about our identity. First of all, Peter says this in verse 5. He says, you're a living stone. Now, granted, if you were to just hear that, you're kind of like, what do you think? I'm like thick in the head or just kind of dense. I mean, I'm a living stone, meaning I don't have a very… I'm not a good thinker, maybe, you know. That's not what Peter's getting at here. When he says that you are a living stone, the imagery Peter uh, uh, implements here really describes Jesus as a chief cornerstone. In other words, we see all throughout Scripture, and of course, especially in Peter's letter… We see that there's always imagery. There's always these metaphors that are being referred to help us to help us understand spiritual truths. And so one of the ways we under, understand our identity is through things that people could see and understand and probably interacted with in a very simple way. So he's like, let's refer to a building here. You're a living stone, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone back in the old building days, is like the cornerstone ultimately uh, was the, had to be the, a perfectly cut stone so that the entire structure was built around that particular stone. One stone had to be perfect so that everything else could almost be as perfect. And then Peter says, because Jesus is a perfect chief cornerstone, you are also living stones, You are stones that make up this building that God is ultimately preparing and building called the church. And what Peter means by identifying Christians as living stones is that ultimately they are united with Christ. He's the cornerstone. We are stones that are part of this building. We find our orientation with this chief cornerstone. We are ultimately united with Christ and partakers of Christ's divine nature. I mean, look, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2 as a way of affirmation. He says, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. So the in, the, so the imagery that Peter employs here is that like we are like a building, and Paul uses the same imagery to kind of help us, help the church, help Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, to understand who they are as God says they are. And one of the ways we understand is that we are really a, a building. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says we're like a body, right? Christ is the head, and we're like the rest of the organs that make up this body. In this place, we're a building. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We are living stones. But functionally, we need to understand what this means as well. Because although it means that we are now united with Christ, and we are partakers of Christ's divine nature, functionally, this means that Christians... To be a Christian is to belong to a like-minded community, what the Bible refers to as the church. Or said another way, kind of in a kind of a contrasting way, it would be a contradiction of terms to be a Christian who lives and functions in isolation of a faith community, which is very normal today, you know? I can be a Christian, but I don't necessarily have to, you know, but… The church, though, I don't know. They're all hypocrites because I'm not. I'm the only one that's not, apparently, you know. We don't identify with the church because they're a bunch of messy people. They got issues, and I don't. Right? Right? No, it's like you're totally welcome here because you'll fit right in. We're all a piece of work and saved by God's glorious grace, right? And so to be Christian, to be a follower of Christ, means that we identify with Christ's church. It's all or nothing. It's a contradiction of terms to think that I can be Christian and not to also be intricately involved and participating in the church that Christ died for and has never given up on. By the way, these, all these parts right now are not in my notes, but let me just launch just a second. I hear time and time again, I was hurt by the church. And I'm not minimizing hurts that have taken place. I'm not dismissing hurts that, have, uh, that are legitimate. But so oftentimes we can become victims and then we point to the church going, oh, this is why I'm not part of the church. is because I, the church hurt me, which usually means somebody in the church hurt me, and therefore I avoid the arrest of Christ's church. And therefore the question is, as a Christian, am I actually united and functioning in this faith community as I'm called? And so I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole here. But I do want to say this, if you have an understanding or an idea or a mindset or if you know somebody who does it, you know, they're, they're avoiding the church because they've been hurt by the church, it's not a very good excuse because God, through Christ, calls His people to come together, and if there is hurt, to make it right, to forgive, to repent, To take ownership of what, because we're all going to screw up. We're all guilty of hurting other people, and we've all been hurt by other people. So guess what? We have a lot in common. We've all been hurt, and we've all been the perpetrator of hurt. All the more reason why we need to come together and say, God, help us. And thank you for loving us, and thank you for never giving up on us in spite of us. So, we are living stones according to God. Living stones, we are united with Christ, partakers of his divine nature, and therefore we are part of a faith community of believers. Secondly, Peter says we're not just a living stone, but we're also a, a, a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. Again, some of this terminology doesn't quickly go, wow, that's amazing! because maybe we're a little bit like rusty on our Old Testament understanding, but let me just kind of briefly unpack this, this concept or this identity marker for a moment. Priests, at least in the Old Testament, were commissioned by God to represent God's people to God. In other words, priests were mediators between the people and God, and and they had certain tasks or functions that God had commissioned them to fulfill. Two primary ones were they they performed the necessary sacrifices on behalf of the people so that they might be, in a sense, sanctified, innocent, cleansed from their wrongdoing and sin, and therefore able to basically not uh, incur the wrath of God. So the sacrifices was the, the means by which God declared them cleansed temporarily until Christ came. Secondly, the priests were also the only people who had access to God. Because, the, because they were mediators between God's people and God, we see that God commissioned them to as the only people that could enter the Holy of Holies, the only people that could actually do the sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so God would ultimately cleanse the priests so that they could perform sacrifices for the cleansing of his people. Of course, we see that Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, and so he's the one who ultimately takes care of the sins of the world. But what Peter is referring to in this, this holy priesthood is that this is how the priests functioned then, but guess what? It's all changed. Not changed as God said, that doesn't really work, let's try something different changed. No, God says, no, this was all a foreshadow, and anticipation of things to come. It was all a means by preparing God's people for a permanent and ultimate sacrifice, and that is ultimately seen in the per- perfect work and uh, person of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now all those who have, uh, have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ are now regarded as holy priests. There was once priest commission, now we are all by, considered by God, regarded by God as holy priests, meaning we are now declared righteous in the sight of God because of the righteousness of Christ. We are declared pure, innocent, and clean because Jesus is our advocate before our heavenly Father. And not only that, no longer are Sacrifice is necessary, but in the in the traditional sense, but now we become that living sacrifice. What does Paul say in Romans 12:1? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, we, are, we live and function day in and day out as a living sacrifice which, by the way, is holy and acceptable to God and it is our spiritual act of worship. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Because those two terms seem to contradict each other, right? Living and sacrifice, meaning dying. How does that work? We're always in this constant place of surrender. Dying to our flesh, dying to our old self so that we might live for Christ every day, every moment of every day. We are a holy priesthood. Not only that, but thirdly, we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood refers to this, that we are, that as Christians, we will rule with the king in his kingdom. So we're not only holy, and we're not only a priesthood, but we're a royal priesthood. We will reign with God forever. I don't know totally what that looks like. But it's a whole lot better than I got going on right now. (laughs) And it gives us a sense of status that regardless of what the world says about you now and whatever place they like to label you now, God says, you know what I think about you? And you know what function you're going to perform for eternity? You're going to rule with me. You're going to reign with me. Even as Scripture says, even the angels will be subservient to us. That's not to boast of us. That's just God's design and plan. Fourthly, we also see that we are a chosen people in verse 9. A chosen people. Deuteronomy 7 really captures this when Moses tells the people of Israel like this. He says, for you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all, the earth, of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be His own special treasure. The Lord did not set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and He was keeping his, the oath He had sworn to your ancestors." This is why the Lord has rescued you with a strong hand from, your, from slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The point that Peter is unpacking for us here as a chosen people means this, that as a child of the king, you are, you are only a child of the king because God graciously and lovingly took initiation with you. We're not just a child of King because we chose it. God initiated with us and we responded. Fifthly, we're a holy nation. We're a holy nation. I didn't flesh this out quite yet by design, but what does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart or to be separate, it means to be different. And what Peter is implying here as a holy nation that is set apart or different is this, that the way a Christian is set apart or or different from the world is that it does not adopt the values and the priorities and the perspective and the worldview that the world promotes. In other words, Christians think differently, which is why I read from Matthew 24, because it's important that we think biblically about current events. It's important that we think from a God through a kind of see life and all our circumstances through a God lens. Remember what we've talked about, right? Christians are a peculiar people. Some people might even say Christians are weird people in the right sense and probably in the honest sense. But the fact is, as Christians, we have a completely different value system, a completely different pri- set of priorities. We live for another kingdom because we know as exiles, as foreigners, as sojourners, we are, we are not home. We are citizens of another kingdom that has already been inna- kind of initiated or inaugurated and one day will be fully established. We are a holy nation Sixth, and finally, we are a people for His own possession. We are a people for His own possession. You know, Western thought oftentimes endorses this idea that uh, this is my life, right? Especially Western individualism loves to kind of promote this idea. This is my life. This is my body. This is my stuff. This is my money. This is my, 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 fill in the blank. And then God speaks. And he says, you belong to me. You belong to me. I own you. And that's a good thing. You are my possession. Because you were once dead in your sin, but I made you alive forevermore. You were once an orphan, but now I adopted you as one of my children. You were once a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, and now you are a citizen of the kingdom of his glorious light. This is what I've done for you. What does Peter say? verse 18 of chapter 1 you were a you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ 1 Corinthians 6:19 and 20 Paul says do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. You know, brothers and sisters, I think this is an opportune time just to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The fact is, Peter says, we are his own possession. We belong to God, not because of anything we could do to earn that status, not because of anything we did to merit God's favor, but because God loves us, and he chose us, and he pursued us, and he saved us, and we just say thank you. We say thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We also know that we are a very forgetful people. God knows that we're a very forgetful people. How easy it is to get caught up in so many things in life. Not necessarily bad things, but lots of things. Satan loves to work through good distractions, by the way. Which is why the Lord, before he died, instituted the sacrament of communion as a way of remembering, as a way of helping us never forget what he has done for us. Again, you you recall... The upper room, right? The upper room where Jesus is with his disciples. They have no clue really what's going on. Jesus has told them over and over again, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back. They don't get it. And he knows that. But he institutes a sacrament of communion saying, remember me. And he breaks the bread and he, and he passes it around. He says, remember me. Remember my body which is broken for you. Eventually, they did understand and remember. Father, we just say thank you for your goodness to us. We acknowledge right now that you, you, have, you have lavished us with grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy and love upon unconditional love. And It's not because we did anything for it. It's not because we could, could do anything for it. But you loved us. I pray that, Father, we would not be a people that so easily forgets. But help us to understand because of what you have done for us, now we belong to you. But at the same time, help us to understand that's way better than not belonging to you. To be possessed by you, the the creator of the universe the one who holds the world in his hands. By by your very existence, Jesus, everything holds itself together. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for that hope and that promise and that guarantee by your Spirit. Once, once, We were not a people, Peter says in verse 10. But now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Thanks be to God. It sort of begs the question for us this morning, as we continue on, why did God go through such great lengths and through such personal sacrifice so that we might obtain this kind of status with him? Why would God do that? Why did God do that for us? Peter tells us in verse 9, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of God. Why does God say that you are a living stone, you are a holy priesthood, you are a royal priesthood, you are a chosen nation, you are a people for his own possession over and over again? Remind, this is who you are. Why did he do that? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of God. That word for proclaim really means to, to publish or to advertise. It means to trumpet or to herald from the rooftops. When we think about this, the, this word for excellencies, it's really a, a word that only used once in the New Testament here, but it all points to ex- the extraordinary ability and quality of God. Just last night, Joshua, who loves tsunamis, he, uh, he's just like, Whoa, if there was this massive tsunami, Jesus could just be like, stand right there and say, No. I'm like, Not only could he do that; he did do that. You know the story, right? The disciples, about you know, they're fishermen; they're used; they they know the waters, and they're afraid for their life. And Jesus comes walking on the water, and then where he stands up in the boat, he does this twice. Actually, he says, "Peace, be still," and even creation submits to his authority. So God has saved us. Why? So that we might be a people, a people for his own possession that would ultimately declare the excellencies of God. Listen, I think it's important that we understand this because, again, we can so easily become internally focused. We need to understand that God did not save you so that he- because heaven would somehow be a better place with you in it. God did not save you because God somehow had some sense of obligation towards you, as if like He wasn't, He was being, He would be less than God if He didn't save you. That's not why He saved you. No, when you look at through Scripture all throughout, God saved you so that His greatness, so that His glory, so that His grace, so that His mercy might be put on display through you. That's why He saved you. He saved you so that you could make much of Him in a very public manner. I mean, let me just do just a very brief swath through Scripture. God didn't destroy Israel in the desert for the glory of His name, Ezekiel 20 says. God saves men for the glory of His name, Psalm 106 says. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for the glory of His name, Exodus 14 says. God instituted the monarchy for the glory of His name, 1 Samuel 12 says. God inspired the building of the temple for the glory of His name, 1 Kings 8 says. God strengthened Israel for the glory of His name, 2 Samuel 7. He didn't destroy Israel for the glory of His name. And then in Isaiah 48, He did destroy some wicked Israelites for the glory of His name, in Malachi 2. God sent Jesus to earth for the glory of His name, John 7. God planned the crucifixion for the glory of His name, John 12. He calls Christians to live for the glory of His name, 1 Corinthians 10.31. God will send Jesus to return for the glory of His name, 2 Thessalonians 1. God will consummate all things for the glory of His name, Revelation 21. Do you want me to continue? Do you get the theme here: Why does God do everything that He does for the glory of His name? Yes, he, cho- he pursues us in love. Yes, He's motivated in love, but ultimately, He loves us and He saves us so that everybody, the world might declare, "Whoa! Look at God." Because what does Philippians chapter two promise is going to happen anyways? One day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and one day every tongue, not just the Christian tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day that will be everybody's conclusion. And yet God wants to do He he wants to do that now. He wants the glory of His name being on full display publicly. So how do we do that? What does that look like in our lives? And I know we could add any number of bullet points here. I'm going to talk about one. You're thankful for that, I know. (laughs) We proclaim the excellencies of God by celebrating our salvation in the presence of others. How do we proclaim God's excellencies and how amazing and how awesome He is? By celebrating His saving grace in our life. You remember a couple weeks back, we took some time just to kind of just talk about what are we thankful for about our salvation, right? And of course, the intent is to foster kind of a, a consistent and regular habit of just giving thanks for your salvation, something we can take for granted at times, right? We have this moment of coming to faith in Christ, and then we move on with the rest of our life as if our salvation isn't a constant point of reference in our life. no. The gospel, as we said, is not just for our salvation. The gospel is critical and vital and crucial for our sanctification, our transformation. And so we see that we're always coming back to this point of reference. Oh my goodness, God is amazing. Look what he did in my life. Never growing tired of how God has loved us and saved us by his grace. This takes place both in a private or or personal act of worship, right? And we talked about that. In fact, even just this past week, it was an incredible time. The elders and the deacons, we had a little potluck together, and the intent is to kind of foster a a deeper sense of uh, just uh, partnership that we have together and growing together and knowing each other. And we just spent a couple hours all kind of sharing, this is who I am. And ultimately, this is how the Lord has saved me. And you know what? I walked away that evening with this, this kind of this uh, theme in my mind going like, man, I heard this over and over and over again. It was this, man, my life was a miserable wreck, but God. Man, I was lost, but God. I mean, I honestly, I was like, Whoa, well, I didn't realize that about some of you. But I love the but God part of the story. Because that's the redemptive part, right? It's not just about like, oh man, look at how you know my my drug passed or whatever past kind of thing. It's like, look what God did. You know what I walked away with? I was like, God can save anybody. God can save anybody. There is no one beyond his grasp. It's so easy to think like, oh man, I've seen that track record. I've seen kind of the the years of poor choices. Probably not going to happen, it seems like. No. God can save anybody. Tuesday night was a living testimony to that promise. I pray that we would walk away with that same confidence that God can save anybody. And we celebrate that in our lives. And we celebrate God's saving grace in our own lives. But the point I want to drive home this morning is this. It also is a public, it is a, it is a proclamation that God wants to do in and through our lives. What I'm referring to is what we might classically known, you know, label as evangelism, right? You know, it's, it's important to understand that theolo- uh, theological and logical appeals are very important to our evangelism. They are true. We don't dismiss those components, but so is our worship, Do you realize that an integral part of your evangelism is not so much the words that come out of your mouth or even uh, the the logical uh, statements that you can make or even uh, defeating arguments, but it's also just an act of worship. People are drawn to how incredibly overwhelmed you are by God's grace in your life. We must understand that our evangelistic effort must also include, really include an appeal to the heart, an appeal to one's motions. One of the books I'm reading right now as a way of studying for this uh, First Peter series that we're going through is by Elliot Clark. Uh, he wrote a book called Evangelism as, as Exiles, and he includes this excerpt that I would like to read to you. He says, we must recognize that the apologetic force of our preaching or proclamation isn't always that our message is more believable than another, but that it's more desirable. In evangelism, we don't simply make a logical case, but a doxological one. We aren't just talking brains. We are speaking to hearts that have desires and eyes that look for beauty. We're not merely trying to convince people that our gospel is true, but that our God is good. Clark goes on to say in his own, as a result of his own ministry in a Muslim context, he says, over the years I've tried to move away from the cold structured arguments into exaltations of praise, from giving evidence for the resurrections to, re, to reveling in its glory, from merely explaining why Jesus is needed to showing why He should be wanted from defending the Bible's truthfulness to rejoicing in its sweetness. You see, part of our evangelistic fervor and effort is in our own personal, emotional response to it. The fact is, one of the greatest ways you and I can reach people is through our own visible excitement of the truth, right? Now, have you ever noticed? You noticed, because we've all done this at some point in time in our lives, Right? You get excited about something and you want to tell somebody, right? And usually when you're excited about something, you're not just kind of, I have something very amazing to tell you. <laughs> no, you're like, this is amazing, right? You've got to see this. You've got to hear this. And even if they don't want to hear it, and even if they're not excited about it like you are, you at least got their attention, right? Because you were overwhelmed. I think C.S. Lewis said it well. He says, you always praise that which you most enjoy. You always praise what you most enjoy. The question I have for you, church family, is what do you most enjoy? Does God's saving grace in your life rank up there in the things that you enjoy most? Are you eager to tell others of God's goodness in your life? To, do, to proclaim and to herald the excellencies of God? If not, could it be, as Clark asserts, that our gospel is silent not because our mouths are broken, but because our hearts are broken? Could it be that we don't proclaim the excellencies of God is because we haven't realized that ourselves? But brothers and sisters, realize we have an incredible Savior, do we not? We sit here because God has saved us from our sin. Because God and His infinite knowledge and his, His sovereign control over all things has called us out. And as Peter says, has saved us into His marvelous light. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have a lot of reasons to rejoice, right? And I just want to kind of summarize where we've come so far. Uh, John actually says it well in 1 John 3, 1 when he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, right? Look at this incredible love that God has freely given to us. He makes us children of God and such we are. The fact is, God, not us, God has united us to Christ, and he has united us to partake in Christ's divine nature, and he's united us to his church, and because we are united to Christ and his church, we now belong to God, we are children of God, we are the sheep of his pasture, we are saints of God. God has declared you as holy and righteous so that you might have full, uninhibited access to creator God. Think about that for a moment. You have full access. What does Hebrews say? Come boldly before the throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. Not cower in shame. Run to me. I'm your daddy. And your earthly daddy may not always be all that and a bag of chips, but I am. Come to me anytime, at any moment, in any condition, and I will be there to show you mercy.